In Jack the Ripper 2, Part 1, we discuss the suspects, and two of the top suspects are still yet to come. Here in Part 2, you can see that we have arrived at the theory that the five canonical Ripper murders were committed by different men, what would seem an obvious fact due to the different methods used. And in Part 1 and Part 2, we've spent a good deal of time pointing out those differences. Now we'll present the last two suspects, and we'll end with a pretty solid theory for you to mull over. Part 2 begins here. We saved a famous poet because we think he did at least one of the Ripper murders, that of Mary Jane Kelly, the last of the canonical five, first mentioned a hundred years after the fact. He was English poet Francis Thompson. He was 29 at the time of the murders. He spent six years failing out of three good med schools. And he was a raving, misogynist, homicidal maniac who believed he was cleaning the streets of immoral women and wrote a poem describing his method of murder just months before the murder of Annie Chapman. This blog article by Richard Patterson, found at casebook.org forward slash suspects, reads, The English poet Francis Thompson is a suspect for the Whitechapel murders of 1888. This was the knife murderer and mutilator of five women prostitutes around the London parish of Spitalfields in 1888. The killer was never caught, but most people thought that it was the work of a religious maniac who was avenging a class of women who had somehow offended him. The theory that Thompson is the Ripper was first proposed in 1988 on the centenary of the murders. This was in an article titled, Was Francis Thompson Jack the Ripper? that came out in The Criminologist. The writer was forensic pathologist Dr. Joseph C. Rupp, MD, PhD. He was the medical examiner for Nooses County, Texas. In his article, Dr. Rupp wrote, Francis Thompson spent six years in medical school. In effect, he went through medical school three times. It is unlikely, no matter how disinterested he was or how few lectures he attended, that he did not absorb a significant amount of medical knowledge. The Ripper was able to elude the police so many times in spite of the complete mobilization of many volunteer groups and the law enforcement agencies in London. If we look at Thompson's background, having lived on the streets for three years prior to this series of crimes, there's no doubt that he knew the back streets of London intimately and that his attire and condition as a derelict and drug addict would not arouse suspicion as he moved by day and night through the east end of London. Thompson was an ex-medical student whose fame grew soon after the murders. In her 1988 biography of Thompson, Between Heaven and Charing Cross, Bridget Boardman described the curriculum and working conditions at Owens during Thompson's time as follows. Anatomy had always occupied a central place in training, and the dissecting of cadavers was accompanied by far more practical experience in assisting at operations. Thompson's time was equally divided between the college and the hospital. Outside, there was a constant flow of traffic, with patients arriving on stretchers or in carriage-like ambulances drawn by police horses. In the main hall, a huge bell was, was continually clanging, twice for medical aid and three times when surgery was needed. In the accident room, staff and students waiting to be called for their services gathered round the fire. There were two operating theaters with wooden tables, to which were attached leather straps for controlling those whose fear led to violent protest. Some observers have stated that Thompson neglected his medical studies. Such claims, however, are inaccurate and originated only after his death. 
His enthusiasm for spending long hours with a scalpel at the college's mortuary led his sister Mary to observe, Many a time he asked my father for three pounds or four pounds for dissecting fees so often that my father remarked what a number of corpses he was cutting up. What did not interest Thompson was passing examinations and bringing his studies to an end. On the three occasions he was required to sit the final examinations, he simply did not show up and as a consequence failed in his studies. Thompson lived in Spitalfields when the prostitutes were murdered. On the night that the fifth victim, Mary Kelly, was killed, he could look from the room that had his bed to the covered passage that led to the room that had her bed. He lived at number 50 Crispin Street in the Providence Road Night Refuge. Supposedly, Kelly and Thompson stayed at the same address. It is even said that a fellow writer, Robert Thurston Hopkins, knew that Thompson and Kelly were friends. Thompson kept a dissecting knife under his coat and he was taught a rare surgical procedure that appears to mimic the mutilations found in more than one victim. Soon after the murders, he wrote about killing female prostitutes with knives. Soon before the murders, he wrote about seeking out women and killing them with a knife and disemboweling them. His alibi for being in Spitalfields, that he was distraught and seeking out a prostitute who had jilted him. Before 1888, he had already showed signs of religious mania, pyromania, and the urge to mutilate females. He also had a history of trouble with the police, who he said were against him all through his homeless years in London from 1885 until the end of 1888. This paranoia probably resulting from opium psychosis. One of his first poems was called The Nightmare of the Witch Babies. A lusty knight, ha-ha, on a swart steed, ho-ho, rode upon the land where the silence feels alone. As he rides through a desolate streetscape, the knight catches sight of a beautiful woman. What is it, sees he? Ha-ha, there in the frightfulness, ha, ho-ho. There he saw a maiden, fairest fair. Sad were her dusk eyes, long was her hair. Sad were her dreaming eyes, misty her hair, and strange was her garment's flow. At this point he begins to stalk her. Swiftly he followed her, ha-ha, eagerly he followed her, ho-ho. But then he discovers she's unclean. But lo, lo, she corrupted, ho-ho. Next, he decides to kill her by slicing her stomach open in the pretense of finding and killing any unborn offspring she might have. It ends with his rapture at finding not just a single fetus, but two. And its paunch was rent, meaning stomach ripped, like a brasting or bursting drum. And the blubbered fat from its belly doth come. It was a stream ran bloodily under the wall. Oh, stream, you cannot run too red under the wall. With a sickening ooze, hell made it so. Two witch babies, ho, ho, ho. And there's our missing uterus connection. He removed the uterus in his opium-soaked killer-savior mode in order to make sure the witch babies could never be born. This poem, which contains phrases like bloody rusted stone, blood, 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 no one life there, ha, ha, and red bubbles oozed and stood, wet like blood, and a plot which reads like the description of a slaughterhouse, was not published. Instead, in November of 1888, the month of Kelly's murder, when Thompson lived a two minutes walk from her room, one of his essays was published in Merry England. In this essay, 
Thompson compared a good writer to someone skilled in the use of a knife on a corpse. Quote, He had better seek some critic who will lay his subject on the table, nick out every nerve of thought, every vessel of emotion, every muscle of expression with light, cool, fastidious scalpel, and then call on him to admire the neat dissection. This is a boast from Thompson, the failed doctor, who is now a great writer. Unlike what he was just weeks previously, when the author of the Dear Boss letter, incensed by newspaper reports of the thinking of the police, had stated, I have laughed when they look so clever. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha, ha. Even without hard proof that Francis Thompson was Jack the Ripper, Thompson makes for an interesting subject. And then there was his confession in Gothic form in his story called Phoenix Coronat Opus, written in autumn 1889, his only published short story, those words in Latin meaning end crowning work, was set in a future kingdom during autumn. It is narrated by a poet named Florentian, who, wanting to be crowned the city's chief poet, holds a pagan sacrifice and stabs a woman to death. This again, written by Francis Thompson. It has these words. If confession indeed give ease, I who am deprived of all other confession may yet find some appeasement in confessing to this paper. I make the post-mortem examine of my crime, and many more, as he plunges his bloody knife into his victim again and again. And there are many pages of this confession, but another paragraph stands out. I swear I struck not the first blow. Some violence seized my hand and drove the poniard down. Whereat she cried, and I, frenzied, dreading detection, dreading above all her awakening, I struck again, and again she cried, and yet again, and yet again. She cried. The story seems influenced by Thompson's opium use with visionary passages that try to capture the highlight and the sensations of the addict. I took the time to read through it, and it appears very much to be a purging of the tortured soul who absolutely committed a brutal murder. There was blood dripping off the curtains, off his hands, off the knife. There was a fire burning nearby. And if he had a chainsaw, he would have used that to fulfill his fantasy. Chances are he brought a hatchet as well. For the murder of Mary Kelly, sorry Joe Barnett, I'm picking Francis Thompson, whose opium-addled brain for the past 10 weeks had been filled with the neighborhood stories of the Ripper killings. All he had to do was wait for the right time. Day or night didn't matter, as it turned out, as he had lost all sense of time. Where the others had killed at night, he could have easily killed at 10 o'clock in the morning. And last but not least, Dr. Francis Tumblety. Beginning with a quote from the Rochester Democrat Republican, written December 3rd, 1888, not long after Kelly's murder in Whitechapel. Our first impressions of the young Francis begin around 1848, when neighbors and acquaintances thought him a dirty, awkward, ignorant, uncared for, good-for-nothing boy, utterly devoid of education. He was also known to peddle pornographic literature on the canal boats of Rochester. Sometime in adolescence, he also began working at a small drugstore run by a Dr. Lispinard, said to have carried on a medical business of a disreputable kind, end quote, a job which would launch him eventually into selling patent medicines proclaiming to cure any number of ills. 
posing as an Indian herb doctor in some cities, a reputable physician in others, and moving from city to city in Canada and the U.S. just one step ahead of the law. The Indian herbs proved financially rewarding to the young con man, and by the age of 26, Dr. Francis Tumblety was amassing a sizable fortune, which he kept stashed in the Bank of Toronto. He was a notable hater of women and lover of men, and he sought attention wherever he went. His favorite method of entering a new city was to ride in on a huge white horse wearing a high-hatted military outfit with feathered plumes, followed by his black male friend leading two elegant greyhounds on leashes. He was arrested in Montreal for attempting to abort the pregnancy of a prostitute named Philomene Dumas by offering her pills of an unknown nature, which killed her. And he soon left town, headed for St. John, and killed a patient there in September of 1860 named James Portmore, who died while taking medicine prescribed by Tumblety. Important to note in this early part of the story that you could attach the name doctor to your name without question back in those days and get away with it. In his typical brazen fashion, Tumblety showed up at the coroner's inquest and questioned Portmore's widow himself as to the cause of death. But that ruse didn't work, and Tumblety made a last-ditch attempt at freedom by fleeing the town and heading for Calais in Maine. After being run out of Calais, he traveled to Boston, entering the city again in grand style, but Boston ran him out. He would soon travel and work in New York, Jersey City, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, and a variety of other cities in the U.S. With the outbreak of the American Civil War, Tumblety moved to the Capitol and put on the airs of a Union Army surgeon, claiming to be friends with President Lincoln, General Grant, and a host of other well-known political figures. It was at this time that Tumblety's alleged hatred for women became most pronounced as seen in the testimony of a Colonel Dunham, who was invited one night to a special dinner by Tumblety. Dunham wrote, Someone asked why he had not invited some women to his dinner. His face instantly became as black as a thundercloud. He had a pack of cards in his hand, but he laid them down and said, almost savagely, No, Colonel, I don't know any such cattle, and if I did, I would, as your friend, sooner give you a dose of quick poison than take you into such danger. He then broke into a homily on the sin and folly of dissipation, fiercely denounced all women, and especially fallen women. He then invited us into his office, where he illustrated his lectures, so to speak. One side of this room was entirely occupied with cases outwardly resembling wardrobes. When the doors were opened, quite a museum was revealed. Tiers of shelves with glass jars and cases, some round and others square, filled with all sorts of anatomical specimens. The doctor placed on a table a dozen or more jars containing, as he said, the matrices, or uteri, of what he called every class of women. Nearly a half of those cases was occupied exclusively with uteri. Not long after this, the doctor, in quotes, was in my room when my lieutenant colonel came in and commenced expatiating on the charms of certain women. In a moment, almost, the doctor was lecturing him and denouncing women. When he was asked why he hated women, he said that, when quite a young man, he fell desperately in love with a pretty girl, rather his senior, who promised to reciprocate his affection. After a brief courtship, he married her. 
This honeymoon was not over when he noticed a disposition on the part of his wife to flirt with other men. He remonstrated. She kissed him, called him a dear jealous fool, and he believed her. Happening one day to pass in a cab through the worst part of the town, he saw his wife and a man enter a gloomy-looking house. Then he learned that before her marriage, his wife had been an inmate of that, and many similar houses. At that point, he gave up on all womankind. Tumulty next moved to St. Louis, again setting up his medical practice, in quotes, and again promenading himself around the city with arrogant splendor. It was here that another aspect of Tumblety's character emerged, his paranoia. He was arrested in St. Louis for wearing military garb and medals he did not deserve, but Tumblety himself took it as persecution from his medical competitors. Soon after, he traveled to Carondelet, Missouri, and was again imprisoned for a time on the same charge. It was upon his return to St. Louis, however, that Tumblety received his greatest blow, a poor choice in aliases, resulted in his being arrested in in connecting with the Lincoln assassination as he was in the habit of using the name J.H. Blackburn. Dr. L.P. Blackburn was at that time under warrant for an alleged plot to infect the North with blankets carrying yellow fever. Tumblety was eventually exonerated, but another rumor began that he had at one time employed one of the assassination conspirators. This rumor was dispelled as well. Tumblety subsequently wrote and published The Kidnapping of Dr. Tumblety, a short pamphlet he authored in an attempt to clear his name and reestablish his good faith with the public. In reality, the book is a little more than a series of paranoid ramblings and fraudulent testimonials. After these fiascos, Tumblety widely chose to leave the U.S. for London in the late 1860s, soon after traveling to Berlin, then to Liverpool in 1874. It was there that he was to meet the not-yet-famous Sir Henry Hall Kane, then 21 years old, who was bisexual and who almost certainly carried on a homosexual affair with the doctor. The two carried on their romance until 1876 when Tumblety returned to New York City. While in New York, Tumblety aroused suspicion through his, quote, seeming mania for the company of young men and grown-up youths. In the years that followed, Tumblety continued to travel across both America and Europe and raised controversy once again in 1880 when he brought a false suit against a Mrs. Lyons for the sum of $1,000, which he claimed she stole from him. Francis Tumblety had set up shop in London's West End in June of 1888 and once again found himself at odds with the police. He was arrested on November 7, 1888, on charges of gross indecency and indecent assault with force and arms against four men between July 27th and November 2nd. These eight charges were euphemisms for homosexual activities. Tumblety was then charged on suspicion of the Whitechapel murders on the 12th. It is theorized that Tumblety, who had blatantly admitted to the police that he spent a lot of time in Whitechapel because he was fascinated with the Ripper murders, and is still considered by many to have been the mystery lodger at 22 Batty Street, Whitechapel, upon which much has been written and theorized, and possibly as having committed the Ripper murders, was bailed on November 16th. A hearing was held on November 20th, 1888, at the Old Bailey, and the trial postponed until December 10th. Tumblety then 
fled to France under the alias Frank Townsend on the 24th, and from there took the steamer La Bretagne to New York City. The police chief of New York had made his brag that a string of murders such as those experienced in Whitechapel could never happen in New York City. Following him was an inspector from Scotland Yard who was pulled off the case and assigned to follow Tumblety. New York officials knew of his impending arrival in the city and had the ports watched for the suspect, but to no avail. The New York City's Chief Inspector Burns soon discovered Tumblety was lodging at 79 East 10th Street at the home of Mrs. McNamara, and he had him under surveillance for some days following. Burns could not arrest Tumblety because, in his own words, there is no proof of his complicity in the Whitechapel murders, and the crime for which he was under bond in London is not extraditable. The situation was tense. All of New York City knew of Tumblety's whereabouts, thanks to the many newspaper articles covering Burns' surveillance, but there was no legal means of detaining the man. Fear and suspicion rose until, on the 5th of December, Tumblety disappeared from his lodgings once again, eluding the New York police, who were watching him so closely. Not long after that, the badly mutilated body of Carrie Brown, a longtime Bowery prostitute, was found in a room in a squalid lodging house known as the East River Hotel. That was April 24, 1891. The autopsy showed she'd been slain in a fashion remarkably similar to the method used by Jack the Ripper. The two doctors that examined her were divided on this opinion. One noticeable difference was what appeared to be a large X cut into her back. Theorists suggested it was the Ripper marking his tenth victim. Or was it a T for Tumblety? But his name next pops up in Rochester in 1893, where he lived with his sister. He would die a decade later in 1903 in St. Louis, a man of considerable wealth. Tumblety was buried in Rochester, New York. The story of Francis Tumblety and his connections to the Ripper crimes emerged only a few years ago in 1993, when Stuart Evans acquired what has now become known as the Little Child Letter. It was a letter penned by Chief Inspector John Littlechild in 1913 in response to some questions asked of him by journalist G.R. Sims. The authenticity of the letter has been established by numerous scientific and historical tests and is not challenged by any researcher. The letter mentions the name Tumblety as a very likely suspect and provided the first insight into a Scotland Yard suspect whose name had been lost for 105 years. Evans continued to research the suspect with co-author Paul Ginney for two years before publishing the first edition of his work, The Lodger, which would be titled in subsequent editions, Jack the Ripper, First American Serial Killer. The news of this new suspect was indeed one of the most celebrated discoveries of the past decade, and many top-named researchers admit that Tumblety's case is one of the most persuasive to emerge in recent years. Evans and Ganey outlined 15 reasons why they believe Tumblety should be considered a top suspect in the Whitechapel murders. Among them, Tumblety fits many requirements of what we now know as the serial killer profile. He had a supposed hatred of women and prostitutes. The abortion with the prostitute Dumas, his alleged failed marriage to an ex-prostitute, his collection of utera, etc. Another. Tumblety was in London at the time and may indeed have been the infamous Batty Street Lodger. He therefore may have had fair knowledge of the East End environs. 
and this, Tumblety may have had some anatomical knowledge, as inferred by his collection of wounds, his medical practice, and short-term work with Dr. Lispinard in Rochester. And Lispinard's work, by the way, involved the restoration of collapsed wounds. There was every possibility that a young Tumblety was right by his side. Another fact, that he was arrested in the midst of the Autumn of Terror on suspicion of having committed at least one of the murders. And this, there were no more murders after he fled England on the 24th of November, if one counts only the canonical five. The fact that Chief Inspector Littlechild, a top name in Scotland Yard, believed him a very likely suspect, and he was not alone in his convictions. That Tumblety was fond of using aliases, disappearing without a trace, and was a subject of police inquiries before his arrest. That Scotland Yard and the American police had been in touch numerous times concerning Tumblety's flight from France to New York, and that one of the three detectives inspectors assigned to the case was sent to New York at the same time, probably to pursue Tumblety. And that Tumblety was an eccentric, but shrewd, smart enough not to stand to his full height when witnesses were around, smart enough to use and trust an accomplice who could keep a lookout for him, and able to find a male accomplice who would be loyal to him at all costs that he had a tendency toward violence at times, and his career may have included other offenses, both at home and abroad, and that several acquaintances of his in America believed it likely that he was the Ripper when they were interviewed in 1888. New York City definitely suspected him, and the newspapers in the U.S. covered him heavily, but in England, the papers hardly covered him at all. Why? Because they had him in their grasp, and they let him go. Before the first canonical murder, there were other alleged victims. On Saturday, February 25, 1888, a 38-year-old widow named Annie Millwood, who lived in White's Row, Spitalfields, was admitted to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary, suffering from stab wounds to her legs and the lower part of her abdomen. According to an April 7th edition of the East London Post and City Chronicle, Annie Millwood stated that she had been attacked by a man who she did not know, and who stabbed her with a clasp knife, which he took from his pocket. After her admission to the infirmary, she was sent to South Grove Workhouse, but while engaged in some occupation at the rear of the building, she was observed to fall, and on assistance being given, was found that she was dead. On Wednesday morning at half past 12, a desperate attempt to murder a young dressmaker was made at Bow. Screams for help were heard proceeding from Maidman Street, Burdett Road, a small thoroughfare lying midway between the East India docks and Bow Roads, and a couple of young women rushed up to some police constables on duty outside the Royal Hotel and said that a woman was being murdered. The two constables immediately ran to the house indicated in Maidman Street and there found a young woman named Ada Wilson lying in the passage, bleeding profusely from a fearful wound in the throat. A doctor of the Mile End Road was instantly sent for, who, after binding up the woman's wounds, sent her to the hospital, where it was ascertained that she was in a most dangerous condition. She, however, so far recovered that she was able to state what had occurred and gave a description of the would-be murderer. It appears that she occupies both portions of the house and was about to retire to rest when she heard a knock at the door, and upon going there found a total stranger waiting, who demanded money from her adding that if she did not at once produce the cash, she had but a few moments to live. She refused to give the money, and the man drew from his pocket a clasp knife, 
with which he stabbed her twice in the throat. She described the attacker as being about five foot six, fair, light brown mustache, about age 30. Annie Farmer resided at the same lodging house as Martha Tabram and reported an attack on 21st of November, 1888. She had a superficial cut on her throat, which was possibly self-inflicted. Here's our theory. We believe that more than one killer was involved in the series of slashings and murders that took place in Whitechapel in 1888 and 1889. It may or may not be the persons we put forward here, but these people were there, they had motive, and they had opportunity. James Kelly, age 28, height 5 foot 6, with fair mustache, found guilty of stabbing his wife in the neck with his clasp knife and sentenced to death, then transferred to Broadmoor Lunatic Asylum, where he escaped with the help of a friend returned to his old haunts around Whitechapel and Spitalfields in January of 1888 to carry out the insane hatred he now carried for the prostitutes that gave him the disease from which he now suffers, which causes intense pain and murderous lapses of control. On February 25, 1888, Annie Millwood, previously mentioned, was attacked and stabbed repeatedly in the abdomen and leg by James Kelly, we believe, carrying a clasped knife whom she described as age 28, height 5657, with a fair mustache. The widow of a soldier named Richard Millwood, Annie was 38 years of age in the winter of 1888, and living in Spitalfields Chambers, 8 Whites Row, Spitalfields, and may have been supporting herself through prostitution, and probably was. An article in the Eastern Post sheds a bit more light on the subject. It appears she was admitted to the Whitechapel Infirmary, suffering from numerous stabs in the legs and lower part of the body. She stated that she had been attacked by a man who she did not know and who stabbed her with a clasp knife, which he took from his pocket. On March 28, 1888, while home alone at 19 Maidman Street, Ada Wilson answered a knock at the door to find a man of about 30 years of age, 5 foot 6 inches in height, with a sunburnt face and fair mustache. He was wearing a dark coat, light trousers, and a wide-awake hat. The man forced his way into the room and demanded money, and when she refused, he stabbed her twice in the throat and ran, leaving her for dead. It is reported that nearby neighbors almost captured the man, but he found his escape. Luckily for her, Ada Wilson survived the attack and lived to relate the story to authorities. The term seamstress, as Mrs. Wilson described herself, was a common term used by prostitutes for matters of self-description. Why robbery? Kelly was in a stage of rage and probably was out of money needing more drugs. The morning after bank holiday, August 7, 1888, waterside laborer John Saunders Reeves descended the stairs at George Yard Buildings to find a woman in a bloody pool on the first floor landing. Martha Tabram had been repeatedly stabbed 39 times in the neck, chest, and abdomen and was lying dead on her back, her skirt pulled up over her legs, in a manner similar to how the Ripper victims would be discovered in the coming days. She was not disemboweled or mutilated, but was stabbed many times by what appeared to be a small knife, probably while still alive and bleeding to death. Another larger knife, such as a saber, might have been used on her chest. A reliable witness had seen Tabram and her prostitute friend pair up with two soldiers, each headed for a private location within the darkness of the structure's outside alleyways and halls. As the witness testimony relates, sometime around 11.45 p.m., Martha and her friend Pearlie Paul went separate ways. Martha with the private into George Yard, 
and Pearly Pole and the Corporal into Angel Alley, both obviously for the purpose of having sex. At 2 a.m., PC Thomas Barrett saw a young Grenadier guardsman in Wentworth Street, the north end of George Yard. Barrett questioned his reason for being there and was told by the guardsman that he was waiting for a chum who went off with a girl. At 3.30 a.m., Alfred Crow returned to his lodging in George Yard buildings and noticed what he thought was a homeless person sleeping on the first floor landing. As this was not an uncommon occurrence, he continued on to bed. John Reeves left his lodgings in the George Yard buildings at 4.45 a.m. By this time, the light was improving inside the stairwell. Reeves also noticed the body on the first floor landing, but he was also aware that it was lying in a pool of blood. Reeves went off to find a policeman. He returned with P.C. Barrett. Although not yet identified, the body was that of Martha Tabram. The body was supine with the arms and hands by the side. The fingers were tightly clenched and the legs open in a manner to suggest that intercourse had taken place. This was the only one of the murders in which soldiers were named as possible suspects. If you're wondering what became of the soldiers, P.C. Barrett was taken to the tower to view a lineup of the grenadiers belonging to that detachment and picked out two, but their alibis held up. A second witness, Tabram's friend Polly, at first was taken to look at the grenadiers, but denied that she'd seen any of them there. She then said that the men's military hats had shown a white band which led police to suspect the men had been with the Coldstream Guards, stationed at a different location. She was invited to a lineup with them and identified two of them positively, but their alibis also held up, one having spent that evening with his wife, the other checked into a barracks. As a result, the witness testimonies faded into history. What is so unusual about Tabroom's murder is that it seems to be a transitional murder showing all the knifing, 39 stab wounds made by a crazed killer with cuts made across the abdomen, but not the opening of the abdomen, as if the Ripper was just beginning his murders and hadn't yet fully graduated to the next step in his methods. He had not yet perfected the quick kill, and Tabram had struggled, likely bleeding to death from the cuts. That's how it looked. And although it's very possible that a soldier or someone in a soldier's uniform was involved, and that he was in the company of a second man in uniform, if the Ripper was a soldier, he was never suspected. We have to believe that the man who would become the killer got to Tabram after her soldier escort had either passed out or left the area. We already know that the Ripper was expert at staying in the shadows. We believe either James Kelly or Dr. Francis Tumblety killed Martha Tabram. On August 31st, just 24 days after the brutal murder of Martha Tabram in Whitechapel, Polly Nichols' body was found in Buck Row in Whitechapel, where our story began last week. Nichols is found to have been strangled, lowered to the ground, and then had her throat cut. She was left in the exact same position, legs spread, skirt pulled up, as Tabram. Two fires had broken out on the docks earlier that night, maybe set to distract the police. Maybe the killer was using an accomplice. At this point, following a rash of killings and stabbings, I believe Dr. Francis Tumblety entered the picture as the man who would become known as Jack the Ripper. He stabbed into her side, then cut across her lower abdomen, but did not open her up. The rest of her body above the abdomen, with the exception of her neck, had no cuts. It is possible that the approach of Cross stopped the killer from going any further and opening her up, but some have theorized that her clothing had not been removed for that kind of dissection. The slashes to the abdomen showed a deep hatred toward women, in her case at least prostitutes. 
there had been no effort thus far in the past murders to remove any body parts. No witnesses had seen Nichols with a man that morning, so we have no suspects yet. Just nine days later, on September 8th, Annie Chapman was found, having been brutally murdered and opened up after being strangled and having her throat cut. This was the first murder that involved the opening of an abdomen. Her killer was suspected of having surgical skills, as shown by the fact that she had been attacked at night, in darkness, within minutes, by someone who strangled her, then cut her throat deeply, then cut her stem to stern, using an incision to open up her abdomen for the purpose of removing at least a portion of her uterus as a souvenir. This was done by a pro, not a drug-addled amateur. At the request, one of the witnesses, Mrs. Elizabeth Long, testified that she had seen Chapman talking to a man at about 5.30 a.m., just minutes before her murder, just beyond the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfield. Mrs. Long described him as over 40 and a little taller than Chapman, with dark hair and of shabby, genteel appearance. She never got a look at his face. He was wearing a deerstalker hat and dark overcoat. If correct in her identification of Chapman, it is likely that Long was the last person to see Chapman alive besides her murderer. Chapman's body was discovered at just before 6 a.m. on the morning of 8th of September, 1888, by a resident of number 29, market porter John Davis. She was lying on the ground near a doorway in the backyard. John Richardson, the son of a resident of the house, had been in the backyard shortly before 5 a.m. to turn a loose piece of leather from his boot. And carpenter Albert Kadash had entered the neighboring yard at 27 Hanbury Street at about 5.30 a.m. and heard voices in the yard, followed by the sound of something falling against the fence. Two pills, which she had for a lung condition, part of a torn envelope, a piece of muslin, and a comb were recovered from the yard. The brass rings that Chapman had been wearing earlier were not recovered, either because she had pawned them or because they had been stolen. They were cheap imitations, and it was unlikely she had pawned them. All the pawnbrokers in the area were searched for rings without success. The envelope bore the crest of the Sussex Regiment and was briefly thought to be related to Stanley, who pretended to be an army pensioner. But the clue was estimated from the inquiry that it was later traced to Crossingham's lodging house, where Chapman had taken up the envelope for reuse as a container for her pills. The press claimed that two farthings were found in the yard, but they are not mentioned in the surviving police records. The local inspector of the Metropolitan Police Service, Edmund Reed of H Division Whitechapel, was reported as mentioning them at an inquest in 1889. He claimed that medical students polished farthings so they could be passed off as sovereigns to unsuspecting prostitutes and so the presence of the farthings suggested the culprit was a medical student. But the price of a prostitute in the East End was likely to be much less than a sovereign. Her throat was cut from left to right, and she'd been disemboweled, with her intestines thrown out of her abdomen over each of her shoulders. The morgue examination revealed that part of her uterus was missing. Chapman's protruding tongue and swollen face led Dr. Phillips to think that she may have been asphyxiated with the handkerchief around her neck before her throat was cut. In his summing up, Coroner Baxter raised the possibility that Chapman was murdered deliberately to obtain the uterus on the basis that an American had made inquiries at a London medical school for the purchase of such organs. The Chicago Tribune claimed the American doctor was from Philadelphia, and author Philip Sugden later speculated that the man in question 
was the notorious Francis Tumblety. So who was Mrs. Long's 40-year-old foreign-looking man? One clue? In Tumblety's effects, upon his death, were found a number of expensive diamond pieces, along with two cheap brass rings. Elizabeth Strides was the first of two murders early in the morning of September 30th. On the night before her murder, Stride was wearing a black jacket and skirt with a posy of red rose and a spray of maidenhair fern. Her outfit was complemented by a black crepe bonnet. She may have been seen with a client, a short man with a dark mustache wearing a morning suit and bowler hat at around 11 p.m. near Burner Street, and again at 11.45 p.m. with a man wearing a peaked cap. At 12.35 p.m., P.C. William Smith saw her with a man wearing a hard felt hat opposite the International Working Men's Educational Club, a socialist and predominantly Jewish social club at 40 Burner Street in Whitechapel. At 12.30 a.m., September 30th, 1888, P.C. Smith saw a man and a woman, who he later felt certain was Elizabeth Stride, standing on the pavement a few yards up Burner Street, on the opposite side to Dutfield's Yard. He described the man as being about 28 years of age, 5 foot 7 inches tall, wearing a dark overcoat and trousers. He also wore a hard felt deerstalker hat and was described as respectable looking. This witness testimony by Smith was considered to be one of the best sightings of the murderer, which many thought had committed the other slasher murders. This description fits James Kelly perfectly, not Kaminsky, age 23 and tall, or Tumblety, who was at least 5'11 feet tall with a ruddy complexion and over 40. No money was found on Stride's body, so it is possible that her night's takings were stolen from her, either in the attack seen by Schwartz, as related much earlier in our story, or by her murderer. Either way, she seems to have gone into the yard with her murderer alive, presumably on the basis that he was a client. This was a robbery and throat cutting, no mutilations. The police theorized that if it was the Ripper, his mutilations were interrupted. We think it was James Kelly, or a still unknown killer, working with an accomplice who stood watch out on the street for the passing of a constable. And it was a killing and robbery, in Kelly's case, that would have been for drug money, drugs to treat the pain and the ugly visions that advanced syphilis was causing him. I read later that there was a second knife attack that night that did not result in a murder, but it was drowned in the press by the murders of Eddowes and Stride. An hour later, the brutal slaying of Catherine Eddowes took place. This, we believe, was Tumblety. The killer's take-home prizes were one uterus and a left kidney, plus the immense pleasure, in Tumblety's case, of knowing he was making headlines and removing one more temptation out there on the street that stood in the way of the young men he so cherished. In an upcoming interview with author Michael Hawley, a Ripper expert, we'll cover the strange life of Dr. Francis Tumblety and his psychological motivations. And the fact that Dr. Tumblety was a homosexual had absolutely nothing to do with the murders. But the fact that he hated prostitutes had everything to do with them. You're not going to want to miss that special. The next brutal slain was Marianne Kelly, and that was done, we believe, by Francis Thompson, who took away a heart which he wrote about in his opus. He hacked and chopped and mutilated in his blood-soaked, opium-enriched fantasy, and when it all turned into poetry and prose a year later, he was praised for his work, eventually becoming a literary giant. Life does have its ironies. 
both Tumblety and Kelly. And who knows? And who knows? Maybe these two were working together. Made it to New York City. Tumblety, who had a residence half a mile from where Carrie Brown was found murdered. Very likely murdered Carrie Brown. Here are some highlights of an interview between casebook.org, where you'll find lots of Ripper information, and British author Stuart P. Evans, who discovered the Littleton letters implicating that Tumblety was a prime suspect. Evans authored or co-authored a number of books, including Jack the Ripper, First American Serial Killer, and The Ultimate Jack the Ripper Companion. Question posed. There's some vagueness in your book concerning the possibility that Tumblety actually lodged the 22 Batty Street, parallel to Burner Street. Is this a definitely ascertained fact? Answer. There must be some vagueness concerning the possibility that Tumblety actually lodged at 22 Batty Street. It is not a definitely ascertained fact, as we have only the newspaper reports to go on, and those are always of varying quality. The point is argued in full in the updated edition of our book. In the first edition of our book, we showed, we hope, that the fleeing lodger from 22 Batty Street was an American, and that this coincided with the start of the police search for a suspect from America who had landed in Liverpool. Since the first edition, we located an article written by George R. Sims in 1911, printed in full in our new edition, which stated that the lodger was an American doctor. Surely it is stretching coincidence too far in the light of his undoubted status as a suspect in November of 88 to say that it was not Tumblety, who was an American doctor. However, the reader is free to draw his own conclusions and may agree or disagree with us. Another question. If you were to cite one piece of evidence your research has uncovered as being the most promising for the Tumblety theory, which would it be? Answer. There are many pieces of circumstantial evidence which so promise for the argument that Dr. Tumblety was indeed the killer. The main ones follow. He was a surgeon with some anatomical knowledge. He had a vitriolic hatred of prostitutes. He had a reputation as an abortionist in Canada. He was arrested in Canada in 1857 for attempting to procure the abortion of a prostitute, Philomene Dumas, who, with the police, attempted to condemn him, and that offense carried a life sentence. He had a collection of wombs from all classes of women in glass jars. The apparent target of the East End killer was the womb. Two were taken away by him. Prior to the murders, a mysterious American had apparently began seeking wombs. He escaped prosecution for manslaughter in St. John, another evasion of justice. He claimed that when young, he married an older woman whom he loved dearly, but who tragically let him down when he found she was a prostitute. From then on, he turned his back on all womankind. He used many aliases and stayed frequently in hotels and lodging houses, constantly on the move, making him difficult to pin down. He admitted himself he arrived in London around June of 1888, just prior to the murders. He was in London at the time of the murders and sexually active committing offenses of gross indecency. All these offenses were committed on Fridays and a Sunday between July and November of 88, the same as the Ripper murders one offense being committed on the day of the Nichols murder, Friday, July 27th, Friday, August 31st, Sunday, October 15th, and Friday, November 2nd, 1888. He was among the police suspects at the time for the Whitechapel murders. Chief Detective Chief Inspector Littlechild of the Special Branch thought him to be a very likely suspect. 
the murders ceased after his arrest and flight from England. Scotland Yard contacted the San Francisco police and obtained samples of Tumblety's handwriting. The only known material trophies taken from a victim by the killer were the two imitation gold rings, which were brass, taken from Chapman. Amongst Tumblety's possessions at his death, with valuable gold and diamond rings and a gold pocket watch, were two cheap imitation brass rings. His description, to a degree, fits those given by Mrs. Long and Hutchinson. Tumblety was pursued to New York by Scotland Yard detectives hunting the Ripper, led by one of the original Ripper hunters, Inspector Andrews. Scotland Yard would not have sent a top detective after someone who is not very high on their list. The previous terror of London, the monster Renwick Williams, attacked females with a knife, savagely inflicting wounds to their private areas, and was a garishly dressed homosexual. The next series killer of prostitutes in London in 1892 was a quack North American doctor. This one, Dr. Thomas Neil Cream, who bore some amazing parallels to Dr. Tumblety and was also very wealthy. He was in prison during the time of the Ripper murders. There were a series of prostitute murders undetected in Kingston, Jamaica in late December 88 and in Managua, Nicaragua in early 1889. These murders were so similar, involving both facial and body mutilation, to the London killings that the contemporary newspapers gave details of them speculating that the London Ripper was responsible. This appeared in American newspapers and in the London Times and was alleged that Scotland Yard contacted the Nicaraguan police for details, feeling that their quarry was then in that country. Dr. Tumblety, as stated in his books, visited both the Caribbean and Central America, and he was on the run at the same time of these other murders. I would recommend the two best reference works on the subject, The Complete History of Jack the Ripper by Phil Sugden and The Jack the Ripper A to Z by Begg, Fido, and Skinner. To complement that, I would suggest buying the updated versions of Whittington, Egan's A Casebook on Jack the Ripper, Rumbelow's Complete Jack the Ripper, and Begg's Jack the Ripper, The Uncensored Facts, when they come out. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. There will be more Ripper discoveries, and the chances are that they may lie in old newspaper archives just waiting for you to discover them and share them with other Ripper followers out there. On my wish list, place Tumblety in Managua, Nicaragua, at the time of the gruesome murders there in 1889. I couldn't locate his writing regarding these trips, and maybe you can. Email us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com if you find it, and we'll share it with our listeners. The same goes for any clippings you find placing James Kelly in any cities where Ripper-style murders or throat cuttings and robberies took place. Five stars. This is a great podcast if you're a history buff. I was so excited to find the episode about the Culper Spy Ring. It was a great listen. And this one by T3000. This is a great podcast. One of the best podcasts out there. And this one by Moishiro. A great look at history. I found this podcast to be very informative, and it makes me want to research history articles, videos, and more. And this one by Wanda in Texas. Very entertaining, expertly written and told. This one by Fish and Preacher. Consistently engaging. 
Both of Storyteller John Hagedorn's podcasts are in my top three that I love listening to routinely. Some, such as the recent episode, The Unsung Heroes of the Revolution, have moved me to tears at certain points. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. And this one, Great Stories by Trex D. I've really enjoyed the wonderful stories and the variety. I listen to them as I use my bike rollers for exercise. Excellent for entertainment and education. Thanks to all of you for taking the time to send us reviews. That's our life's blood. You can find our podcast, 1001 Heroes, anywhere good podcasts are found. And at our home website at 1001storiespodcast.com. Coming soon, a doubleheader author interview with Ripper authors Michael Hawley, top Ripper expert and author of a number of Ripper books and articles, including the new book, Jack the Ripper, Suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety, and Jeff Mudgett, author of Bloodstains, and the inspiration behind History Channel's recent American Ripper series. You'll go behind the scenes of American Ripper with Mr. Mudgett and hear never-before-shared stories about the American Ripper. And you'll walk the streets of London's Whitechapel with the man who many believe was Jack the Ripper.